3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge that the continued resilience of, the fir- of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty ha- was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, yeah. to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Breakfast on this Wednesday, the 6th of December. Um, We are, it's the first show of December and we're all feeling a bit Um, I hope we're all feeling a bit festive for the holiday season and like getting ready to wind down even though for a lot of people it is a busy time of the year but um, we do have a jam-packed show today Um, but before we get to that uh, I'm very excited to announce that we have some new people in the studio with us one um join and they will be joining us for wednesday breakfast uh, one of them today is grace hall um good morning grace how are you good morning it's great to be here i'm good i'm very excited to be joining the team yeah i'm um looking forward to everything and um you know can you just like introduce tell us a bit about yourself and like you know why you like why you want to do breakfast at 3CR yeah um well i am a, a disability support worker um and a a writer as well um and i'm really i'm also really like i've been listening to 3CR for for quite some time and um the the ethos and um Everything 3CR is is really appealed to me. Um, and breakfast, it's a great opportunity to, to talk to lots of different people on a whole host of, of um, things. So I'm excited to kind of, yeah, meet some more people and um, get up bright and early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, even though it is a challenge yeah. um, doing it in the morning, like, yeah. you know, it's still very interesting. It's like no no week is really the same yeah it's, absolutely yeah and you get to talk to heaps of people yeah, but yeah hopefully you'll you'll love it and um yeah. just asking what's your favorite show at 3cr yeah um the boldness is probably my favorite show um which is a, a disability current affairs program which is produced by people with disabilities um and they cover a lot of really important issues um housing um and public transport they also interview a lot of really great artists um in the disabled community um but i think yeah the struggle to find accessible housing at the moment is um is obviously quite a challenge Mm. so 
it's yeah, it's it's great that that yeah, people people are able to to say what they need to say and have these really important conversations. Yeah, definitely. There's um, you know, um, a lot of things that uh, me as an able-bodied person, um, I don't you know, even have to think about because, you know, uh, it's just everything's just so privileged and centred around able-bodied people. But um, just letting our listeners know that The Boldness airs every third and fifth um, of the month on Wednesdays at 6pm. So definitely um, it's a good show to tune into. And now I'm just going to, uh, you know, sort of run through what we have today on the show. So first up, we're going to be listening to a conversation I had with Iranian-Australian activist Shahrem Mansouri about um, this issue about, you know, disinformation and misinformation targeted, um, uh, like online targeted at, you know, more vulnerable groups like immigrants and people um, where English is not their first language. And it's very interesting to see how misinformation and disinformation is tailored to them. So that'll be coming up first. And then next up, after that, um, we'll be looking at an interview that was aired on Women in the, on the Line last Monday. Um, it's with the author of White Tears, Brown Scars, Ruby Hamad, and it's about racism in the Middle East. So that's coming up, and then up, and then after that. Um, Wednesday breakfast guest Claudia previously interviewed, uh, sorry, Wednesday breakfast host Claudia previously interviewed um, Beata Morlier, who is a packaging product stewardship lead at Boomerang Alliance. Um, it's a non-profit organization aiming for a zero waste society. And um, it's about, you know, how we use single waste plastics more than any other country worldwide um it's very you know important because you know it's been a year um since red the red cycle program collapsed so that'll also be very interesting and um boomerang alliance also has some um events coming up um soon and then lastly we'll have kit mcmahon um CEO of Women's Health in the Southeast, um, joining us um, live today. And um, it'll be about the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, but especially about how, um, you know, you can encourage kids to get engaged with talking about gender equality. So lots of things to stay tuned for. But before that, We'll go to the headlines. Grace, take it away. Two landmark lawsuits have been launched in the federal court in Queensland against the Queensland government who are being sued over what's been labelled a modern stolen generation. The claimants have raised allegations of racial discrimination dating back to 1992 to the federal court in Brisbane. The class actions are spearheaded by Brett Harold Gunning and Madison May Burns, 
A barrister for the applicants, Christine Hanscom, said that Mrs. Miss Burns's children suffered racial discrimination and were deprived of their connection with their family and their First Nations culture. The Queensland class actions case will be heard again in the federal court next April and many more cases in the other states are expected to follow. Israel has widened its onslaught to the south of Gaza, ordering evacuations for several more areas. Since the, the Israeli military officially resumed its attacks on Friday, hundreds more Palestinians have been killed. On Monday, the Israeli military declared the availability of safe zones to reduce harm to Gazan civilians. However, it is unclear where civ civilians might seek safety. Attacks have intensified in Khan Yunus in the south, despite being previously la labelled as, as a safe zone. An Al Jazeera journalist said the reality is that there is no safe place in Gaza. More than 15,500 people have been killed, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health, since the warfare broke out on October 7. And in Sudan, mass displacement and massacres have increased over the past month. In November, an estimated an estimated 800 to 2,000 people, mainly civilians, were killed in fighting. A further 8,000 were displaced, with many fleeing into neighbouring countries due to an eight-month-long conflict between two military groups in Sudan, which are the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces. On Friday, the UN Security Council agreed to end its special integrated transitional assistance mission in Sudan. The Sudanese government had requested that the mission end because it was failing to meet ex expectations. Hosna Sadat, an activist, actress, and the and the former presenter of Khurshid Private TV has reportedly ended her life by jumping from the fourth floor of a building in Kala-i-Fatullah area on of the fourth of the tenth district of the, of Kabul in Afghanistan. The Taliban reportedly invaded Sadat's re residence following a neighbor's complaint about hearing music. It has been alleged that Sadat threw herself out of the window as a desperate attempt to escape. A woman's, right, a woman's rights activist expressed deep concern, stating that Sadat is one of the hundreds of victims of the oppressive anti-woman and terrifying rule in Afghanistan. She argued that international and domestic human rights organizations must not overlook these cases and ensure that perpetrators are brought to justice. And that's all for the headlines today. Thank you to Grace for providing them as well. We'll now go to some announcements. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife becomes stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. First up, we're going to be listening to a conversation I had with Iranian-Australian activist Shohre Mansouri. Many immigrants, most of who are new to the country, use social media networks to navigate their new life in a place that is new to them. A Facebook group going by the name of Persian-speaking female is like one of the many online groups that are there for a specific for a specific group of people to find support and solidarity. This Facebook group has over 27,000 users, consisting of mostly Iranian and Afghan women across Australia. While groups like Persian-speaking female are often helpful, Shahre claims that discussions in the group have been co-opted and used to spread misinformation amongst the user base especially during the lead-up to the Voice of Parliament referendum, which points to a wider problem of fake news and disinformation targeted at more vulnerable groups, such as immigrants or people who don't have English as their first language. Here's Shohre explaining more. My name is Shohre Mansouri. I'm an Iranian immigrant to Australia. I moved to Australia with my husband at year 2005. Uh, some years after I was settled in, I founded the charity called the Our Foundation for Disadvantaged Children's Education, which um, helps children in Iran, disadvantaged children in Iran with their education. Um, about six years in of running the uh, organization, the, the charity, I started uh, getting involved with animal rights movement. I turned vegan and since then I have been an animal rights activist. You're very active um, like here after, you know, coming uh, after coming from uh, another country and, you know, helping out the Iranian community here. Um, many people who uh, migrate here from Iran and Afghanistan um, often go to like online forums and spaces um, to, you know, communicate with each other. There's this group um, called, if I'm correct, it's called Persian Speaking Female. It's in Facebook. It has um, over 27,000 users and it's, um, you know, a woman only group where Iranian and Afghan women go to to post any of their questions or concerns. Um, what You've had some involvement in this um, group, but first of all, what do you think drew so many of them into this group? Like, what is this group's purpose? Yeah, uh, so when you go to another country as an immigrant, there is 
a lot of things that you don't know and you don't know uh, where you can find the answer for your questions, especially if English is not your first language, it's going to be a lot harder um, to, to help yourself and find things that you need for just day-to-day -day things for life, you know. Um, so there are different groups like this uh, on Facebook and particularly for Iranians or speak, um, Persian speakers as well. But this one particularly is for women. Um, and the questions that are posted there are, it can be like really um, simple stuff like where can I get party things? I'm going to organize a birthday party for my child. Or, or all the way to asking questions about there's this election coming up, what can I do or what should we do? Particularly, there were questions um, posted about the referendum, voice referendum that was there uh, recently. Um, the group is, um, I'm also a feminist, the group is particularly interesting to me from a feminist point of view because many um, women who have problem in their marriage or they are um, under domestic violence and they need help and, and they don't know where to go and where they can find help, uh, they, they reach out to this group and they can post anonymously and they often receive really good information from very well-informed people. There may be some uh, answers that are not as compassionate or not helpful or even wrong. But if you go through the posts at the end of the day, you can see most people find the answers to their questions, whatever the question is. Is this um, considered like uh, a safe space for women to voice their concerns around, you know, um, things like domestic violence, um, what sort of advice is usually given to them? Yes, it is safe, particularly because people have the option of posting anonymously, and that makes it a lot easier. Uh, and there are people who respond, they can't be anonymous, so they have to share their name. Um, and often they share where they're coming from and why they are sharing that, the information they're sharing. Some, some of them may be sharing some um, experience from their own life or their friend's life. Some of them may be lawyers or people who actually know um, what their rules are in Australia. So in that sense, it's very safe. Um, it, could, uh, it could also be a, obviously a place for people sharing misinformation uh, as well, unfortunately, but at the end of the day, for example, for a voice referendum, if I say, you could see that there were both sides of the argument shared. Um, so um, there is that both sides, you can find really good information and bad information. Um, but to answer your question, usually when people say that, okay, you can, um, this is, let's say, going back to the domestic violence, they're sharing anonymously their question and people respond and they ask them that they can DM them or direct message them if they need more help. So that option is also there. So I would consider the self uh, platform for those type of uh, questions. 
as and you can keep it safe as much as you want. And you know, speaking of the voice referendum, um, just how common um, are discussions about or like is information about or around domestic politics, politics that have, happens in Australia? How common is it to see? those things discussed? It's not that common, to be honest. I haven't seen many, many of that type of questions to be posted. Uh, there are a couple of questions that I saw were mostly this referendum is coming up and I have no idea what it is about, what do I do, you know. So the same sort of, the same tone that you can see as from an immigrant that needs help is like, this is another thing that I have no idea about, can you help me? There were some posts uh, from people that they were suggesting sharing information that this referendum is coming up, go and educate yourself. There were uh, one YouTube video particularly that someone shared that was um, trying to be neutral and um, covered both sides of the arguments. Um, so yeah, that, that was also there for referendum, but generally it's not about politics at all. And, you know, how can you, how can people in the group make sure that the things, you know, like any online space, um, the things you are viewing is um, correct and not tainted by, um, you know, lies or um, just misinformation? How can they make sure of that? Because you did mention that there were some some cases of misinformation yeah. within that group um, about the voice referendum. Yeah, it's no different, really. It's similar to any other platform. People can share misinformation and disinformation, and they can share links and videos to to things that are wrong and are shared on other platforms. So unless you self-check or unless you read through the comments of people who are trying to explain why that certain link or certain comment is not quite valid, you may well be um, impacted by those misinformations. What were some of the points that were being made about the uh, the voice referendum in the group? Yeah, so some, some of them, I'm just going looking at some of them that I have listed um, to go through them. Uh, some of them were just exactly the things that no campaign uh, was basically spreading in the society. The worst of them, in my opinion, was if you don't know, vote no. I just read some of the interesting ones for you. One was, uh, if this passes, every time you go to... Um, to a park or a beach, you would have to pay. There was other things like if this, this is this one is probably you have seen it from other conspiracy theories um, groups as well. If um, if this is passed, if this passes, we will not be able to have our homes anymore, and we have to give up any um, right to own any property. Um, one. One side of the things, some of the comments that were particularly interesting to me was, um, and if you put yourself in some of these people's shoes, you would understand why this had them change their mind, even if they wanted to vote yes, was about how this referendum is going to make some people above us, above all of us. And this is exactly why we have left our own country. We don't want to go to another country to have another group ruling us again. We 
want Australia exactly as it is. We don't want it to change. We want all of us to be equal, uh, which is particularly coming from a personal experience of being um, always um, suppressed and their rights being taken away because they were of a minority of ethnicity, because they were a minority of religion, or because, in fact, just they were women. And they have left their country, they have left everything behind. And this wrong and misinformation that has been spread that, yes, this means there is no equality in this country, is definitely going to um, change their mind, even if they wanted to make yes or make them absolutely certain that they're going to say no to this referendum. I'm just going through the different uh, links that are there. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of people who were saying yes, and there were a lot of people uh, that were thinking that we are a guest here, we should like, respect the owners, um, and there has been so much tyranny against Aboriginal people who are the owners of this uh, land, and we should give them what they have asked for. So there were a lot of positive comments as well, fortunately. But there were these type of things as well. And uh, you could also see some racist comments that you can see from the other conspiracy theorist groups, like these people already have everything, they don't need more, and who says there is a gap, you know, that type of thing as well, you could see there. One one comment that was also interesting is, it was saying if this, if this referendum passes, then they will force our children to speak in Aboriginal languages. Yeah, so that, that type of things that I don't think any of them are particularly exactly specific to this group. Um, but yeah, similar things you probably have seen in other other groups. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm very surprised to hear that it's um you know very, some of it's very similar or exactly the same talking points from the new no campaign but I'm guessing it's translated into a different language. What I believe and I have no scientific reasons for this but I can sense it that some of these things were particularly translated for the Persian speaking communities. There was long ago that people were sending around and it wasn't coming from an immigrant that doesn't know, you know, what they want to vote for. It was someone who had this in mind to change people's mind about this referendum and making sure that there's no way that people are going to vote yes. It's just so much misinformation. And to me that the no campaigns have particularly translated misinformation and have spread it around in their uh, Persian-speaking community. I see. So there may have been some like alleged astroturfing or, you know, just brigading going on, like online brigading. Yeah. yeah. Does it does it look like that they used, um, like you know, Google Translate and it didn't come out right? It could be. Yeah, it could be because it just doesn't doesn't sound right. And there's also no logic in what they have put together in this. It's absolutely absolutely wrong information and exaggerated. You know, this in in a way that 
you could only think that they're hoping that this will, this will impact people, that they have no easy way of double checking those. It's like when, when a person is uh, relatively new to the country and they're not, the English is not that good, it's not easy for them to fact check. And how much information or information about referendum is in Persian? Not much. So it's obviously for them to double check those. And that's the vacuum of information that's been there. It has been definitely uh, filled up with all of the inf wrong information that the new campaign has. And, you know, you said you were very active, um, you know, in the lead up to the vote. You were very active in that forum. What was the, uh, in what way were you active? What was the role you played in that group? So um, I wasn't even a member of that group. Um, but during, like I said, about a month before the um, uh, referendum, I started thinking to myself that the situation is looks so bad and the atmosphere is so bad in the society against this. And even though I'm not an Aboriginal right activist as my main cause, I'm definitely an ally. And I thought to myself, if this referendum doesn't pass, uh, I'm going to feel really bad about myself and I'm going to regret not doing anything and I won't be able to blame anyone if I about myself if I don't do anything so I started becoming active unfortunately a bit late when I think about it in hindsight uh, but um, as I got involved in get up as and became a volunteer for that and then one of my friends she suggested that I become a member of this group because she had observed all of these different types of conversation around referendum and she thought this is one way that maybe you can make a change or make make a difference if you go there and have a conversation with people so I started becoming active in the group and I tried to engage with people and leave comments and see where I could help in other things and not just this and also contribute in uh, one post that was about the referendum but uh, one thing that it was a bit lucky was I managed to contact the admin of the group and um, through FRE and because I'm a little bit known in the community she agreed to have an interview live interview with me on that page and um, and there were people who joined that call uh, live chat and we managed to have a, a question and answer for about an hour um, and help people understand why this is all of the things that I mean many of the things that was shared on that group are not necessarily right and some of them are misinformation and it was a good conversation I think and it was a really good platform to to make a change, basically, and uh, bite with this misinformation that's always hitting us somehow in different um, matters in this society. Yeah, you mentioned that there is a vacuum of information missing, and that's filled with misinformation. And it could be because the language barrier that this is happening and people are, um, you know, um, not... Uh, getting the right information but how do you do you think can this be improved like what can you improve this situation to like lead these women to find better and more um trustworthy sources for information so they don't fall prey to this again yeah in particular when it comes to voice i don't think it was just for the just for the 
Persian speaking people or non English speaking people, I think the vacuum was everywhere. To me, I feel like we people who I don't know read newspaper and are involved, we think that everyone else knows their arguments and everyone else follows what's going on and what's behind Bush and you know what are the different types of arguments and what's what arguments are for what arguments are against these you know we assume that this is this the case for every person in the society but it's not the case many people just live their own life and they don't take note of these things until like i don't know one month before the referendum when they realize they need to go and vote and this is the vacuum that i think it was there for ordinary people of the society that they weren't involved in those discussions and people like us we're just having conversations and we had decided one way or other but that wasn't what was happening in the society and that vacuum was there which the no campaign in my opinion filled it up with misinformation and disinformation and it was even worse when it comes to non-english speaking people or at least i know about uh, Persian speaking people that there was not much information for them. Many people actually changed their mind to vote no after they read the pamphlet or the booklet that the government had sent out or the AEC, the Australian electorate. They had sent out this. People had sat there and read both of the types, both types of their yes and no. And they had decided to vote no. Like, this is such a small, um, you know, so, so little information for people to make their mind on a big referendum like that. So, um, and this is for people who, who did read. But if you're speaking not a good English, if you're not following politics, and if all you get about this referendum is misinformation which is um, sent to you or which is uh, basically made by the no campaign what do you think they would vote thank you shore for your very um important unique insight into this um situation um going on in the farsi speaking community before we leave is there anything you'd like um our listeners to know there's this thing that uh, the popular elections and uh, this referendum that I it really scares me and it is like what can we do every time every time different types of misinformation and lies and disinformations come to us and we have to go to a unfair battle I feel because we can fight with misinformation how would we be different with them you know but this keeps happening um every time like last time there was the Scott Morrison won the election it was exactly the same with jobs and you know creating fear campaign and all of that the election was won and this time it was again fear campaign with lies and misinformation and I don't know what's going to make it the next thing different if we don't do something fundamentally different I'm really scared to be honest and I don't know what we can do with this in the world that we live with this different algorithms that make it easier and easier for people who lie to win people's minds. Um, I just hope that 
we find a way to change this game. Definitely. And I think what you did was definitely a start to that. Well, thank you so much. And that was Shahre Mansouri discussing the wider phenomenon on disinformation and misinformation in online spaces um, targeted towards more vulnerable groups like migrants and non-English speakers. You can find out more about Shohre's work as the founder of the Yara Foundation, which helps out underprivileged Iranian children on our show notes at 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday dash breakfast. Now, um, coming up, as we see the resumption of genocidal violence in Gaza, we're going to an interview with the author of White Tears, Brown Scars, Ruby Hamad, to examine the roots of racism against people in the Middle East. She draws from stereotypes that originated in pre-colonial times and examines how these old ideas are continued in the media and exert an influence on policy and perceptions today. She's being interviewed by Kanagi Pat, and this segment was first aired in Women on the Line last Monday. When it comes to Middle Eastern people, um, Arabs in particular, these stereotypes go back many centuries. So the yeah, Edward Said, um, the Palestinian-American academic in Orientalism, gives an account of the interactions between Europe and the Middle East, which at that point, um, you know, it was called the Near East. And these... Uh, interactions uh, compelled a representation of that part of the world that had more to do with the people constructing that representation, i.e. the Europeans, than it did with the people of the Middle East. So the it was a very sort of self-serving representation in which the Middle East was constructed as everything that the West was not, by which... Um, I mean, or by which Edward Said meant that it was constructed in very negative terms as being barbaric, as being in infantile, uh, emotional, unintelligent and uncivilised, i.e. everything that the West was not, and unpeaceful as well. And this sort of self-serving construction was repeated in all manner of, you know, texts, artworks, music, and travel, you know, travel writing. And it just became solidified. Saeed describes it as a, like a, a almost like a, a, a theatre uh, in which what plays out is what the what Europe sees and uh, not what is actually there. So that's, that's where it started. And it's probably important, well, it is important to, State it is a form of racism, but at that point, uh, you know. So this is we're going back to like pre-colonialism, uh, pre-European colonialism. So at that point, it was more of considered like a cultural lack that the Middle East had, as opposed to what we consider race per se now, which is tied to this idea of, of biology and inferior biology. It was very much considered a cultural and religious lack, right? So 
the the sort of the specter of, of Islam that Europe had and very negative view filtered into their perception of the people that practice Islam and that, and that spoke the language of Islam. Yeah, I think that one of the big things of white supremacist structures is this construction of some sort of binary wherever possible, where, you know, you position the East versus the West. One is civilized, one is barbaric. And this is something you explore, of course, uh, pretty in-depth in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can you talk a bit more about this and how this upholds these structures even today? Yes, yeah, so that, what I just described in Edward Sayed's work is the, 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 the foundation of the stereotypical and negative attitudes that the West more broadly now has towards the Middle East and towards Arabs in particular. What I discuss in my book um, with a focus on women but extending beyond women because uh, you know women are part of the society and um, that we don't exist separately too and a- a- as you said it's it's about binary so in the same way that the, the east uh, by which I mean in this context the middle east uh, is was the constructed as the binary opposite of the civilized peaceful moral west or europe Women, uh, the status of women or the perception, the European perception of Arab women, Middle Eastern women, uh, was drawn from that. How I frame it in my book is there there are two time periods that influenced uh, or that shaped Western perceptions of Arab women. And these time periods are the Oh, actually, women of colour more broadly, but we'll, we'll stick to Arab women for now. The the period of sort of territorial expansion and acquisition, where colonialism was in its earlier phases, where they're you know invading and seizing territory, and so at this at this point, I uh, was the was when the construction of women of colour of Arab women as being quite permissive, promiscuous, um, easy. And when you look at that, it corresponds to this fantasy that the whole world was opening itself up. Um, I'm using that imagery deliberately. They're opening itself up for the West to come and take it. And so that was then reflected in this perception of women as being animalistic in their lust. And so that was the that sort of the first, you know, few centuries or couple of centuries of Western or European colonialism. And so these are the sort of the, the permissive, promiscuous stereotypes. Then after colonialism was consolidated and the colonized began to be more organized in how they resisted, so and that included the use of violent resistance, that's what they, when the stereotypes and archetypes of violent Arabs, including violent Arab women, bad Arab women, uh, terroristic, um, again, irrationally angry, brainless. So if you look at these, and so I'm talking about stereotypes like the, you know, the the angry brown woman and the angry black woman, the bad Arab versus, you know, the, the oriental harem girl, right, versus the 
you know, the Pocahontas ideal in, in the Americas versus the Jezebel during slavery. So these very different archetypes, both demeaning, both dehumanizing, but serving a different function. The earlier one was the function the function of consoling almost or, or justifying to the European mind, to the Western mind, that what they were what they were doing in expanding their territory and colonizing the world was actually in the best interests and was actually accepted and wanted by these inferior races who wanted the superior West to overtake them. And then the other stereotypes, the angry, violent stereotypes, were used to rationalize the resistance to colonialism as not coming from political resistance and and the desire for liberation and freedom, but just coming from this irrationally angry state that these inferior races had. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think there's a single brown or black woman living in the West anywhere who wouldn't at some level um, understand the angry brown woman stereotype in particular in the workplace I mean you do give examples in your book as well of lots of different women but particularly Palestinian women who live in America who talk about either being fetishized or disregarded and feel that you know there's no space for them in their society and I guess this is a you know an ongoing example of this these structures that were created Yes, yeah, so these, I mean, absolutely, these, so these structures were created and consolidated over many centuries. And what's happening now, particularly with Arabs and even particularly with Palestinians within Arabs, is they exist at this, this juncture of not just racism and Orientalism, but Western, i.e. US political, geopolitical interests. So it it is in the interest of the US, the state, I mean, the US administrations to perpetuate these negative perceptions and stereotypes of Arabs because it works to justify their incursions and their presence in the region. So we see, and I discuss this, this, or I touch it on it in my book, even though with other the representations of other people of colour, and I'm not at this point at any way saying suggesting that racism for everybody else has been solved. Far from it, but the the initiatives, particularly in Hollywood, in pop culture, to represent people of colour in a. a more flattering or even just a more humanised way is uh, a lot more perceptible than it is when it comes to Arabs who continue to be either represented very negatively or else just not represented at all. So when the only um, representation that you have of a whole entire group of people, particularly a group of people like Arabs who you know, the the interactions go back for so long. Um, then when they're either negative or they don't exist, then there's nothing positive or even neutral for, you know, your average Western person, your average American or Australian to when they watch the news and when they see the way in which or hear the way in which politicians are speaking about Palestinians, there's nothing against which to counteract that. 
This is why. So when when you know a, a white man in America will open fire on a school and shoot children, there are so many other constructions of white malehood, um, i.e., the people that the young men that we know that we see on TV and and represented in the media in other ways that can counteract that construction and it's because they can counteract it your mind will say okay well we know that not all white men are like that right there's nothing to fall back on or almost nothing unless you happen to know Arab people and a lot of people just don't or they may only just know them quite um you know from a distance so when there's nothing to counteract that and there's just negative image after negative image then you're going to believe it's it's not surprising that people accept Than the media narrative and the political narrative, and that's that. Unfortunately, is what is driving a lot of the way in which um, Palestinians, in particular, represented. Unfortunately, for Palestinians, because um, Israel is such a close ally of the US, and the US wants to have a Western country, and for all intents and purposes, Israel is a Western country, a very consciously Western country as well, and, and you hear it in their discourse, um, then America is not going to want to let go of this foothold that it has in the Middle East. And in order to maintain that foothold, it has to prevent widespread sympathy for Palestinians. And that is what has been happening for all these decades. And that has been... Um, muted or, or counteracted somewhat in the, or quite a lot actually in this latest, um, I wouldn't say in this latest conflict, but in this la latest iteration of the ongoing occupation of Palestine, where um, the proliferation of images on social media, I think has taken the US administration and the Israeli administration as well of Netanyahu by surprise, this out, pouring of sympathy for Palestinians that, that is drawn primarily from the images of Palestinians on the ground in Gaza, uh, but also, amazingly, of young people on TikTok who are quite incredible in dissecting what is happening and just not buying this dominant narrative and also being able to, in you know, two short two, three-minute clips, inject history which is something that the media uh, uh, hasn't done. When I say the media, the, the the legacy media, what we refer to as the mainstream media, the, you know, the big mastheads, haven't injected context, historical context, into their coverage. And this has been, uh, you know, someone I research media and 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 my for my PhD degree, and I did it for my master's degree, and what comes up. Uh, time and time again in this in the academic research on Israel, how the you know the Western media coverage covers covers um, Israel and Palestine is that viewers or readers, news media consumers are not being given enough information to actually adequately process what they're seeing when they see news stories about Palestine that it perpetuates this narrative again of the angry Arab, irrational, barbaric, that is 
for no reason attacking this poor little brave civilized Western country in the in their midst. Um, but what researchers will always say, and I'll particularly point to the work of the Glasgow Media Group here in the UK, who have done amazing studies, primarily called uh, the, the main one being um bad news from Israel. Because what, what they do is I should explain content studies. So they'll analyze the coverage of where which where if there's any bias exhibited, which way it slants. Um, and then they'll also do audience studies where they'll get the audience to watch the coverage and get their views on, on how they perceived or, or how they interpreted the coverage. And what they have found time and time again is that initially audiences would be not receptive to the Palestinian perspective because of what they're seeing, but then once they're given more historical context, they're perspective flips it completely flips and they're like oh so so for example a lot, a lot of you know in their, in their in their audience studies they found that audiences this is uk audiences didn't understand what the term occupied meant they thought that it just meant someone was living there so when they heard occupied territories they just heard oh yeah people live in these territories they didn't weren't comprehending because they weren't given the information that this is a military occupation which is obviously an oppressive um, regime to live under and that some of them also assume just because the the, the uh, coverage of Arabs and Palestinians is so negative just made an immediate assumption that it was actually Palestinians that were occupying Israelis um, and but uh, much of the time their perspective will flip and they'll think oh okay because they'll be like well okay if this was me then I would want to fight back I would want to resist that was Ruby Hamad speaking with Carnegie Pat about the persistent influence of racist stereotypes in allowing US and Israeli foreign policy to de- demonize Palestinians, in particular, uh, Palestinians in particular and Arab Muslims more generally. Thanks to Women on the Line, you can hear the full interview in their latest podcast first aired on the 4th of December. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial. This next interview, which was done by Claudia, was previously aired on Wednesday Breakfast. Um, And, you know, it's about Australians using more single-use plastics than any other country worldwide after Singapore. An initiative called Red Cycle was put into place to manage the collection and recycling of the soft plastics used by the general public. A year ago, the Red Cycling program collapsed after it was found out that they were not recycling the soft plastics that were collected at Coles and Woolworths. With no large-scale soft plastic cycle, 
recycling service set up a year on, we'll be listening to a conversation between Claudia and Birta Morlier, Packaging Product Stewardship Lead at Boomerang Alliance, which is a national non-profit aiming for a zero-waste society. Boomerang Alliance will also be holding an event soon, the BYO Cup campaign in the Mornington Peninsula on the 8th and 9th of December. Listen to the end for more details. So we are a national non-profit organisation and we've been around for almost actually 20 years. Um, we do represent a whole range of other environmental organisations across Australia. So we've got 55 allies and we're very well supported through the community. So we've got about 50,000 supporters and additional groups who um, yeah, really advocate um, with us and on at our side. So a large-scale organisation with a range of campaigns that we're working on. Thank you. So let's uh, talk about supermarkets since they are a place most of us are familiar with. Yeah. Uh, They sell products made of plastic. They sell products wrapped in plastic. And then you often take home the products in more plastic. So going to the supermarket is basically a trip to buy plastic indirectly (laughs) as far as I can see it. Uh, You've just released an audit report in relation to supermarkets and plastics. What were the key findings? Yes, spot on. So we last week have released our supermarket plastics audit. And what we did find is that some supermarkets are doing better than others. However, overall, all supermarkets across Australia have a lot of room to improve. Um, What we have seen and what most of our consumers know is that there are a lot of items that are unnecessarily wrapped in plastic. Um, One of the findings, and this will not surprise many, is that often um, um, items that are wrapped are actually more affordable than those that are unwrapped. And that, again, is uh, often unnecessary plastic. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And we, what we want to see is, first of all, a reduction of those plastics that we do not need. So those plastics that are completely unnecessarily um, used for a whole range of items. And secondly, what we want to see in all of our supermarkets is a shift to more reuse and refill. This is what we see in a lot of other countries now, and that's what we want to bring to Australia as well, so that we actually have those reuse and refill systems very much readily available in all of our supermarkets across Australia. So what is the best way of bringing supermarkets to account on on these plastics issues? Should we be moving to obligatory reporting mechanisms such as the modern slavery reporting obligations? And that's exactly where Australia is heading. So we've had some really clear, strong commitments from the federal government earlier this year to move to exactly that. So it's called extended producer responsibility where we will see that producers are going to be responsible for all the packaging that they are going to place on the market. So we see that, for example, in Europe, it's very strong around, you know, anything that you produce, you must take responsibility for. So you produce it, you need to actually then also be responsible for what happens at the end of its life. That's exactly what we will be doing in Australia. So the commitment is there. There will be now um, mandatory standards and mandatory targets rather than what we've done in the past, which has been completely voluntary. So there will be a really big shift that we will see. 
And will there be penalties for companies that don't comply with the expectations? That's exactly what we are advocating for and that's what we will need to um, make sure that we keep going as, you know, our group in terms of the advocacy that we actually get the standards and the targets right and that then there's also the monitoring and the compliance because without some of that we will not see the uh, best effect. What we do know is that the majority of producers are actually looking forward to having a mandated scheme because it will create a really level playing field for everyone and then we all know what we are working with rather than currently what we have for our voluntary standards and targets. And the collapse of Red Cycle was obviously a mm. huge disappointment, but the statistics yes. show that even when Red Cycle was operating, only 5% or less than 5% of soft plastics were being recycled through that organisation and the rest was going to landfill. Yes, and that was um, surprising to many that it was such a small percentage. So what we want to see is a large-scale scheme, which also takes into account business to business. So when you go to other places and when businesses work with each other, that, that soft plastic is actually recycled as well. And it's not just the 4% that we had been recycling through Red Cycle. So it was only ever a really small amount. So this new scheme that we want is going to have to look at every single part of the supply chain and needs to be able to be really accessible. So there's been some really interesting trials done through curbside collection. So to be able for uh, for households to recycle through curbside. And in addition, what we want to see is that businesses are also held to account that everyone recycles across the board and not just households. And recycling itself is not a, a simple fix, is it? It's quite a complex process because all the plastics are, are different. Can you take us through some of the challenges there? Yeah, so there's a whole lot of different materials, plastic uh, materials, and some are much easier to recycle than others. Some are much higher value than others in terms of the recycling economy and what you can ultimately do with the product. What we do also um, keep talking about is composite materials. So when you have a number of different things merged together, they become so much harder to actually recycle and to keep using so it's in terms of what we want to see in our product stewardship scheme in Australia is uh, materials that can easily be recycled and easily processed within Australia. So there's a lot that can be done just in that initial design phase. And we always say waste is really a design problem. So there's a lot more to it, but we need to start with design. So that's um, in terms of material choice and making sure that the materials that we use are A, recyclable in theory, but that they're also in practical terms recycle because what we're finding at the moment is that a lot of things say it's recyclable, but they don't actually get recycled in the end. So that's where we need to see that shift. Mm. And before we move off the topic of supermarkets, um, mm. what sort of things can consumers do to make a stand against plastics in supermarkets? Yeah, there's some really practical steps that we can take. So starting with our uh, plastic bags, always bringing your own bags. And there's still a lot of uh, consumers who do not do that. So really shifting that as a first action. Um, choosing some of our more affordable delis as well. So a lot of delis and uh, smaller 
supermarkets, they have the ability to, or everyone has the ability, but they actually do happily accept people bringing their own containers. So most butchers in Australia and most definitely in Victoria can accept your own containers and are allowed to do so, which is um, during COVID that was not the case, but now that's 100% the case. So bring your own containers, challenge your supermarkets as well. So that's a really big change because all those little um, produce bags, they all go to landfill. And that's also then when you go to your fruit and veg section in your supermarkets to not use those single-use produce bags, shift to those small ones that are reusable, they're really affordable and you can use them for a really long time. So just moving away from anything that's unnecessarily wrapped um, and choosing some of those products that are reusable. And I guess also just being mindful of the plastic aspect of the purchases. I know uh, a particular family member in, in my household <laughs> has reported that uh, on his r- most recent trip to a very large supermarket, uh, yeah. he was forced to use the self-checkout and he said yep. that if you have uh, chosen the non-packaged fresh food items, then you have to then go through that search and locate uh, before you can scan the item. So, you know, there might be an, a number of different types of bananas or uh, yeah. <laughs> whatever. And he said there's actually a huge convenience in choosing the package product because the barcode is just there and you can scan it quickly. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting observation that was responded to uh, with quite a, a sharp response, I yeah, might, might add. But um, I think just keeping this mindfulness in people's uh, front of mind is, is really helpful so they can weigh up that little bit of extra effort that they might need to make yes. scanning We're an item, but with that bigger value. Yes. Yeah, and uh, thinking about, you know, what, what happens at the end of this, uh, you know, it's, it's a single-use item, so what happens at the end? Can I actually recycle it or will this be just yet another landfill item? Exactly. Now, the other really interesting aspect of your work is the plastic-free program that you've been running in a number of communities around Australia. Can you tell us mm. about this program and, and how it works? Yeah, so... Our engagement program is called Plastic Free Places, where we, across Australia, are now working in all states. We are um, working directly with hospitality venues to, in, the, uh, in previous years to basically get them band ready and to show them what reuse in hospitality looks like. Going forward, our focus is very heavily on reusables in hospitality, so working with venues, with events, with stadiums with corporate offices and with accommodation providers to show that we can shift from single-use takeaway to reusable takeaways and shift that landscape around, you know, how much we are actually sending again to landfill that is completely unnecessary. So I'm predominantly talking about straws and cutlery, coffee cups, takeaway containers and plastic bags in that landscape. So we work, uh, yeah. Go on. We work across all states, and we have eliminated um, over 50 million single-use items over the past um, few years. And we will keep going now with this focus on reusables, and we'll see that uh, increase drastically. That number. 
Fantastic, because there was a statistic in your uh, report that was talking about the the overall plastic footprint being the equivalent of 53 million cars or something, you know, extraordinary. So, uh, yeah, it's a really uh, important and very large um, area and, and, and contributor to our, our waste landscape. Um, and, yes, not only our waste landscape, I think what we keep forgetting is the plastic footprint um, also um, in terms of the carbon footprint because it's actually very significant what plastic contributes to our carbon footprint. And that's one of those um, areas where we think change can happen really quickly by us all making some very simple um, swaps and making sure that we consider pl- the plastic footprint when we talk about our carbon footprint. And down in uh, the Mornington Peninsula, you have one of these mm-hmm. plastic-free communities that you're assisting. Um, we have, yes. Yeah. And you'll be running a few events coming up. Can you yes, tell our listeners do. about those? Yeah. So we're very aware now that across Australia, we are using about 50,000 single-use plastic cups every 30 minutes. They pretty much all go to landfill or are littered. So the focus of these events that we are running on the peninsula and also in um, most other states now we've had these events happening and they will be rolled out more over the coming years. It's a reusable cup day where we encourage the community to make that change. It's one change, change to a reusable cup and you can make a really big difference. So we will have a couple of events coming up on the 8th and 9th of December with Common Folk Coffee in Mornington and with Home Ground also in Mornington. They're a social enterprise and so every single uh, packaging item that will not be needed, the money saved, which is about 30 to 50 cents per single-use cup, can then go back into a social enterprise or a charity and that's what we're um, working on with these venues. And what we will encourage the community to do is either bring your own cup or make uh, use of one of those reusable cup systems. They are um, happening everywhere in Australia now and there will be more and more of that, that you can actually just go to a cafe and borrow a cup. So we're inviting everyone to come along on those two days. That's 8th and 9th of December, Common Folk Coffee and Home Ground. Fantastic. We'll put those uh, details on our show notes on our website and uh, let's encourage uh, listeners to uh, bring their reusable cups to to those events, but uh, every day also. We're coming to the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask you one more question. The President of the United Nations Environment Program, William Ruto, uh, has said in Kenya this week where they are meeting that to deal with plastic pollution, humanity must change. What do you see as the biggest challenge in changing humanity to achieve this? I think the biggest challenge is for everyone to take responsibility and for us all to be able to change some behaviours that are very ingrained and to take that really seriously. So I think often we think it's just uh, it's just another thing. But if you look at a global landscape, how much plastic is actually produced, and we are set to increase that over the next years globally, if we take that seriously and we actually go, let's holistically look at how we can reduce it and not pollute our oceans, which is really the biggie, we look at how many tonnes and tonnes of plastic 
are going into our oceans every day, um, that's really where the change will happen. And there's a whole supply chain that needs to take responsibility, but the consumer in the end will also need to really consciously start changing behaviours. And I think in Australia we are definitely achieving a level of consciousness now around what's happening in, in many other um, countries as well where it's really obvious that our beaches are being littered, that there's so much plastic in our ocean. So the awareness is definitely increasing and then we need to turn that into action. Mm. Yeah, we do. And um, it's still shocking to, to learn, though, that Australians consume more single-use plastic per capita uh, yep. than any other country in the world after Singapore. So... Yes, that's correct, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, to be globally leading in single-use plastic use per capita, that's not good enough and we can all do much better and we have to. Thank yeah. you. And that. I always say start with one change. You know, look at, don't look at this complex situation. Look around yourself at home, in your office, what is the one change you can start with today? That sounds like a good advice. Thank you very much, Beata Molière. Packaging Product Stewardship Lead at Boomerang Alliance, the national peak not-for-profit organisation aiming for a zero-waste society. And we'll put uh, details of how you can uh, find out more about Boomerang's activities and sign up to their petition to cut plastic packaging, um, as well as those Mornington Peninsula events on our website just wanted to uh, correct something I said earlier. It, Australia's plastics consumption admit, emits the same amount of greenhouse gas as 5.7 million cars on the road every year, not 57 million cars. I thought that was a bit large as I was saying it. And that was Beata Mollier talking to Claudia about um, that was Beata Molio, who is the packaging product stewardship lead at Boomerang Alliance, talking to Claudia um, about um, aiming for a zero waste society. And Boomerang Alliance is launching a the BYO Cup campaign at Common Folk and Social Enterprise home ground on Mornington Peninsula on the eighth and 9th of December. If you are wanting to go, make sure you bring your own reusable cup. Now on to some announcements. Salam be hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. Hi there, it's busy homosexual and community darling Dean R. Curie and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855 AM. Keep Radical Radio alive. Community Radio is everything and I love it. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 855 AM on the dial. And now we're going to be talking about violence against uh, gender-based violence or violence against women which um, affects over an estimated 736 million women all over the world. 
In Australia, one in three women have experienced physical violence since the age of 15, and one in five Australian women have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15 as well. This year, the United Nations 16 Days of Activism campaign kicked off on the 25th of November on the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and runs until 10th of December, which is Human Rights Day. During this time, many are raising awareness about gender-based violence and some are, in some are encouraging raising awareness early amongst children. Today, I'm joined by Kit, McMah Kit McMahon, CEO of Women's Health in the Southeast, also known as WISE, to talk about raising awareness of gender inequality with kids and if this is likely to prevent gender-based violence in the future. Uh, um, good morning, Kit. Uh, good morning, Kit. How are you? Yeah, good. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. And just um, making sure it's pronounced wise um, in short, yes. right? Yes. yes. Yes, it is. You have it perfectly. No worries. And first of all, um, how has wise engaged children on serious topics mm. like, like this in a way that's kid friendly? Yeah. So the first thing, the first thing to say is teaching and supporting children to understand about respecting gender equality, it's actually crucial for their social development and, and a well life, a well life for a child. It's good to equip them for life skills, for knowing what a positive relationship looks like. And there's just benefits all around. So how you do that with children? Well, what the educationists, what the childcare educators say is it's about connecting with their point of world, point of view in the world and where they're at. And um, it's about learning and it's about play and it's about um, engaging with them in ways that they can understand. So what WISE have done is we've partnered um, with our, our the organisations that we work regularly with to produce a, 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 a kit, a, a toolkit. And that toolkit comprises uh, illustrations to colouring by a local uh, illustrator, um, which is fantastic, but also some resources on education tools and conversation tools um, about how everyone can have a um, conversation, whether it's you know, mum or dad or um, when we're in the kitchen, when we're out of the playground, when we're picked up from school, when we're just walking around the, the shopping centre or anything, how, um, how can we um, talk to children about what equality means? So it's even it's even just giving those opportunities to the caregivers to know how to have have those conversations, um, uh, the educators about where they can incorporate it into their learning program, but also any community worker um, and any person in the community about what they can do to have those conversations with children about uh, what respect looks like. Mm. And just clarifying, is this also sort of? Um incorporated into like schools or like um you know with teachers and students yeah so victoria and the rest of australia have got programs like respectful relationships project programs and and they're throughout the schooling system and we know that more and more childcare centers are doing this work more so there's in our region there's some great childcare centers who 
you know, talk to their children about, um, you know, through storybooks, through storytelling, through equitable play, um, about that idea of what a stereotype about a girl is and what a stereotype about a boy is and people should have, you know, should have the ability to be who they are and be respected for what they are. Um, so that is throughout the education system. But there is a common view that there needs to be more of it, which we support. And our view also is, is that it's not only schools that have an obligation or responsibility to do that, it's, it's everybody, you know. It's the images that we present to the children in the shopping centre, in the media. It's the, um, the way that we, um, we, we have the relationships ourselves as adults because children pick that up, right? So all of these things, we have a responsibility to make sure that, that the children in our lives know and see what a positive, um, respectful relationship looks, looks like because we model the way and, and just be able to, to enable the, the environment around a child to be positive and affirming about what that looks like too. Mm. And, and what are some of the common and like current examples of how people can, uh, how like young children can face gender equality, uh, inequality and discrimination today? Yeah. yeah. So look, there's the, probably the ones that we've all heard of, which is, you know, girls are pretty, boys are strong. And those outdated stereotypes um, are impacting children as young as four, five or six. The toys that we buy, the clothes that you get in Target or Kmart, that they reinforce those stereotypes. Then um, uh, the way the other inequality presented, there was research that came from Westpac, from banking, that showed, and it's still current today, that <laughs> girls get less pocket money than boys. Mm. So, you know, there's that stereotype of the pay gap, I guess, that's perpetrated quite early as well. But then we have the, the kind of the, the presentation of, of the behaviour that boy is as acceptable if you're a, a boy and whatever that means and then what's acceptable if you're a girl. And those stereotypes reinforce um, inequality in the form of how people should accept poor behaviour or not. Of course, worryingly, um, we've got reports that have come out recently about how those stereotypes and how those... Um, uh, poor relationships are now coming through with our adolescents, you know. We're now seeing reports and evidence about the perpetration of, of negative and disrespectful relationships in, uh, in teenagers and accepted, you know, what poor, poor accepted behaviours about uh, what constitutes a loving relationship as well. And in our region, we also hear that ongoing need for, for teens um, do for anyone to understand that they have a right to a respectful relationship, a right to a healthy, um, a healthy uh, personal and loving life as well. So, the other way I have to say it presents itself is for those people in our community that don't comply with the binary. You know, that our trans children, um, our children that are LGBTIQ plus, you know, that they don't fit with that binary, and as a as a result, they feel extra pressure, they feel extra discrimination and oppression. And um, they do feel um, extra poor behaviours exerted and perpetrated against them because they don't fit with those stereotypes. So we've also got a responsibility to make sure all children, regardless of how they identify, are safe and well. Mm. And, and 
what sort of services can be accessed in the area if young people um, experience gender discrimination or gender-based violence? Yeah. Well, the first thing that anyone needs to know at the back of their hand and any phone number is you just need to know the number 1-800%, right? So this is a number that if you go to, anyone who's witnessed it can call up and ask for advice. Anyone who's experienced it can call up for advice. And indeed, can I call out, anyone who feels like they're perpetrating it can ring up as well. And we want to we make sure that people who know that they're perpetrating and want to do something about it know that they can go to them as well. But they call up 1-800-RESPECT. What they'll do is that, that service will be able to put um, the caller through to uh, the right service. And sometimes it's easier just to um, give um, people that line. There's also a website, which is 1-800-RESPECT, um, which um, people can go to and explore as well. But it talks about healthy relationships. It talks about where support can be get can be taken from as well. The other, the other thing too is, of course, we've got um, um, other support services and, and news centres that are expressly there. There's a kids' helpline as well, which is a great, um, a great source for, for children to um, call up if they want to as well. And we know that that's, that's, um, that's something that's often uh, accessed. It's got support services for kids aged 5 to 12 and then teens 13 to 17 and there's also web chat so probably those are the two that I'd leave your listeners with, that they can hold them in their hands, um, and that those two helplines are able to then channel people to where it's best for them in their local area, wherever that might be. Mm, definitely those will be helpful. And mm. just coming back to gender norms before we yeah. leave soon, um, sure. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, WISE has been working with um, kids for the 16 days of activism since 2017, yeah. right? And um, yeah. have you seen any progress with how children have viewed gender equality since then or even things like, you know, gender norms changing? Yeah. So our experience possibly reflects the evidence that children are becoming more aware earlier of the diversity of the uh, the planet and, and how different people need to be respected for who they are. So I think that's, that's a positive thing. I think we'd absolutely have seen. Mm. Well, but I think the, the uh, other thing to say is that we've also seen diversity actually have a consequence, a, a manifold consequence on people who are experiencing disadvantage as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, lastly, um, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know just before we leave? Absolutely. Just know everyone has a role to play in stopping violence before it starts. And that, can write, that, that includes being aware that it's a problem, knowing the prevalence, being aware of what drives it, but calling the poor behaviour out or doing something about it when you see it, but also nurturing people's um, innate need to be themselves for who they are and embrace that as well. Embrace that, that individual, individual for, for, um, for everyone, including children, because it actually leads to a better world. Well, thank you so much, Kit, for joining us today. No, thank you. Yeah. And that was Kit McMahon, CEO of Women's Health in the Southeast, also known as WISE, which is a not-for-profit 
not-for-profit organization that that focuses on assisting women, um, children, particularly those who are significantly disadvantaged in accessing services that they need. And they are getting involved in the 16 Days of Activism this year with kids. And the campaign is called hashtag 16 Days for Kids, which you can get involved in online as well. And if you found this distressing or you are experiencing um, gender-based violence, um, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT. More helplines will be in the link uh, in, uh, li- more helplines will be linked in our show notes um, later on. And just, uh, we're going to a song now. Um, this is Treaty, the Red Fern remix by Yothi Yundi. And um, just before we go, thank you for listening. Um, see you next week. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.